Amen. That is what we come to do. We come to drink from the well of Christ, the well of living water. We come to His Word where He has given us instruction for our training and for our reproof and to lead us in righteousness. So if you have a Bible, please open with me to the book of 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 2 will be in verses 17 through 22 this morning. And the title of the sermon today, um, kind of borrowing from Justin Peters, maybe with a little bit of a nod to Justin Peters, the title is Clouds Without Water. As we read our text, you'll understand that that, that just is kind of an inevitable title for a sermon on this passage. Um, we have spent some time in Second Peter chapter 2. It's been a little bit of a taxing time, I think, as we've looked at the depth and the darkness of false teachers and those who seek in their wickedness to lead the Lord's people astray. Um, And as we spent several weeks here, I think we come to this last section, verses 17 through 22, and I think these are the most vivid pictures, the most vivid picture that Peter paints for us as he explains to us the nature and the work of false teachers. Um, We have seen that these teachers are crafty exploiters, They are bold sinners, and we come to this final section and see that they are enslaved enticers. They are enslaved to sin, and they seek to entice others to come and join them in that wickedness. They're fruitless and godless people. Their ministries are, are those which will be torn down and rejected by the Lord because they do not teach the, the whole counsel, the truth of God's word, and they do not preach the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And through Peter, the Lord describes this thoroughly and, and very descriptively in our text. So let's turn our attention to God's word and read Second Peter chapter 2, verses 17 through 22. I ask if you will, please stand with me as we read God's word. This is holy scripture. It is inerrant, infallible. It is the perfect word of God. It says, these are springs without water and mist driven by a storm for whom the black darkness has been reserved. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error, promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome by this He is enslaved. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. It has happened to them. According to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit, and a sow, after washing, returns to wallowing in the mire. This is the word of God. May he write it upon our hearts. Please be seated. Now let's join together in a word of prayer. Father, we bow before you and we praise your great and mighty and holy name. Lord, for you are highly exalted in Jesus Christ, to Jesus Christ, belongs the name that is above every name. The name at which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Jesus Christ is Lord, confessing that to the glory of God the Father. Lord, that is the desire of our hearts as we're gathered to worship today, that we would magnify the name of Christ and glorify the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray that you would captivate our hearts by the truth of your word today. Pray that you would help to lift our eyes from seeing the vile wickedness of those who are false 
and turn our eyes upon Jesus. Lord, may we, in this description of those who are false, may we be reminded of our great and glorious Savior. May we, Lord, come to him who is the fountain of life. Lord, I pray that in your word, your saints would find encouragement. Lord, I pray in your word that you would correct us. I pray that you would rebuke us where the former life, the life of sin, still holds and clings to us and leads us into rebellion. I pray that we would have a view of Christ today. That would be a sanctifying view. That we would look upon our Savior. Upon seeing His glory. Seeing His goodness. That we would turn away from our sin. Lord, I pray that you would give us eyes to see. And ears to hear. And humbled hearts that are ready and eager to receive and apply the truth. Lord, I pray that your spirit would move in power among your people today. For this task of, of preaching and hearing and applying the word is a miraculous work that can only be accomplished by and through your Holy Spirit. For if we strive in this endeavor in our own strength, we are destined to fail. Lord, if we strive in the power of the Holy Spirit, we can have great confidence that you will sanctify us in the truth. And as you sanctify us in the truth, you will receive all praise and honor and glory. So, Lord, may we hear your word today. Pray that your voice, O oh God, would overshadow us. That we would hear your words. That they would transform us. That we would walk in a worthy manner worthy manner of our calling know that we are called to be slaves and followers and disciples of Christ we are to imitate Christ in all things so may that be our heart's desire today and would that be the work that you accomplish through your spirit for your glory I ask all this in Christ's name amen so in our text today Peter has a, a very clear aim he sets out to expose the evil of false teachers to show their enticing work by showing the fleshly and fruitless outworking of their ministries. We see that their ministry has no power. It causes, it brings no good effects. And we've talked before about the measure of a ministry. We know that we don't just measure a ministry by numbers, by numerical growth. The world, of course, will do that. They will see a quote-unquote church who is adding to its number each and every week, though maybe pushing falsehood and not preaching the whole and full counsel of God, and the world would describe that as a successful ministry. But that's not how we measure ministry. The, the measure of a ministry, the measure of a church must firstly primarily and really only be pointed back to that ministry and that church's fidelity and faithfulness to the truth. Peter sets out to show that the false teachers are known by fruitless ministries, not a lack of increasing numbers, but a lack of increasing godliness. That is a worthless ministry when the people are not growing in Christ's likeness. Due to the lack of sanctification seen as the outworking of false teachers, we should see in that the great importance of being able to mark and resist and avoid them because our great goal is to be like Christ. As his people, washed by his blood, redeemed by his work at the cross, our great goal is to glorify him by being conformed to his image. 
Peter lays forth for us that that is not what happens through the false teachers. And therefore, we must plainly and clearly mark and avoid them. Our goal is to see Christ here. Our goal is always to connect Christ to every text, to see how every text points to Christ. And and so kind of as a primary thesis, a primary exhortation, I would offer the following. We must resist the enticements of enslaved sinners by coming to and drinking from the fountain of Christ. We must taste his goodness. We must behold his glory. That's our goal as we work through this text, that we see the need to resist the enticing sinful deeds of false teachers. And we do that by coming to Christ, by drinking from his fountain of eternal life, by tasting how good he is, and by beholding his glory. Friend, do you want to behold the goodness and glory of Christ? It's what our eternity will be if we are in Christ. So let's begin that today. And as we connect Christ to this passage, kind of as the flip side of all these descriptions that Peter gives, the encouragement and the exhortations just really will jump off the pages. When you you think about these verses as being the opposite of Christ, the opposite of what we should pursue, you will see exhortation jump off the instruction jump off the pages of the instruction of Peter. So really, there's kind of three distinct descriptions, three distinct sections that Peter gives, and in each of those, we will tie back to Christ. So, So we'll look at this negative picture, and then we'll consider what are the implications of the life and ministry and salvation that Christ offers. So we begin in verse 17, and we see that false teachers ultimately are empty talkers. They are empty talkers. The the verse says they are springs without water. They are mist driven by a storm for whom the black darkness has been reserved. So this is an enlightening picture where we see the falsehood and the hypocrisy and, and the misleading nature of false teachers. Peter begins by saying they are springs without water. They are wells or fountains that do not produce water. And so that leads to the question, what is the primary purpose of a well or a spring or a fountain? Let's think about this this image, this illustration that Peter gives us. What's the purpose of a well or a spring or a fountain? Well, it's to produce and to move water. So what is a well without water? It's nothing more than a hole in the ground. What is A spring without water, well, it's really just a ditch. When you talk about a water fountain, you may picture various things. You might think about a a big, fancy water fountain outside of a building, or you might think of something as basic as a water fountain, a a drinking fountain on a wall. But but what is a fountain that doesn't produce water? It's pointless. It has no purpose. It accomplishes absolutely nothing, except maybe to get in the way. The church exists to disciple the saved and to evangelize the lost. The purpose of a well is to produce, move water. The purpose of the church is to glorify Christ by discipling the saved, by leading the saved to be conformed to the image of Christ and evangelizing the lost. We are to preach and proclaim Christ to those who do not know him. If that's our purpose, we must ask the question right off the bat as we think about this illustration, are we as the church, and you can stretch this broadly to the church in general, to us as a local church, or to you as a member of a local church, are we a spring without water? Are we fulfilling our purpose? Are we ourselves being conformed to Christ while we are leading others to to walk in the same likeness of Christ and proclaiming the good news of the gospel of Christ to the lost. Are we doing that? Or are we a spring without water? 
In Peter's day, I think we would know that wells and springs would really be the, the primary source of drinking water. Drinking water really being a needed nourishment for everyday life. These deceivers, these false teachers are described as that which offers nourishment, offers what is needed for everyday life, but actually offers nothing. Not only offers nothing, but really leads you astray, leads you away from water. Some commentators bring in this picture of like a mirage in a desert where you look in the distance and you think you see a spring or a pond or, or some type of water and you chase after that and it disappears. And false teachers are like that and, and even in that you see this mirage in the distance, but then you're actually walking away from the water. You're walking away from the direction in which you should be going. You are being led into sin and temptation. There are springs without water. There are also mist driven by a storm. What that really means is they're like the dark clouds of a thunderstorm that produces no rain. The weather's cooperated a little bit with this illustration today. So, so just think about this. If you've lived in Alabama long enough to experience an Alabama summer, you can picture this. Think about that hot, dry day when you see those black thundercloud storms off in the distance. You think, we're finally going to get some relief. Then the clouds never get there. The rain never comes. Perhaps it rains for, for just a, a short moment and, and really does nothing but make the air more sticky more humid and more unpleasant. That's what these false teachers are like. They're like that cloud you see in a distance that never actually brings any help. The Reformation Study Bible says, like these hazy clouds that provide no refreshing rain, the false teaching cannot provide spiritual sustenance. Provides no spiritual nourishment. Do you speak the truth in a way that nourishes? Or do you speak in some other way that only starves? That, that does not bring the truth to bear in such a way that a, a fellow soul, a fellow believer, or even a lost person is built up in the knowledge of Christ. These ought to be sobering descriptions. They ought to be things by which we measure our lives and the ministry of this church. Is your life best described by being a rainless cloud? Something that promises nourishment but never actually produces? You know, you think about a, a thunderstorm again, because this is a, a thunderstorm cloud that Peter's kind of picturing. You think about in, in the summertime, you see those clouds, and typically they produce nothing, they produce very little, nothing really helpful, or they come with this great torrential rain that brings flooding and other types of damage. Are you like that, a mist driven by the storm? Or are you one who nourishes and loves and builds up with the truth? Think about physical clouds. They are they're driven by an unseen force. They're driven by the wind, and that unseen force is what really causes them to either produce nothing or produce damage or, or maybe be helpful. As believers, we are driven by an unseen force. The Holy Spirit is compared to the wind, just like the wind that blows the clouds. The Holy Spirit is compared to be that wind. We are blown by an unseen force. The question then becomes, is, is that force... Does it lead you and enable you to glorify the Lord and edify others? Or do you just leave nothingness or even chaos in your wake? If it's nothingness and chaos, you're not walking in the Spirit. That, that's part of the takeaway, is if you're blown by some unseen force and it does not glorify God and edify others, it's not the Holy Spirit that's leading you. It's the flesh. It's your sin. And it's your wicked desires. I think one place we could see this so plainly is in our close relationships. Consider yourself as a spouse, perhaps as a parent, 
or, or even as a friend, you leave chaos everywhere you go. And I'm talking relationally, not just, not just a messy house, a messy life, but the chaos uh, of spiritual unknown and spiritual deficiency. Do you leave that chaos? Or do people, af- after you have interacted, do they desire to increase in godliness? Really think about that. Really consider your interactions with another. Wives to your husbands, husbands to your wives, parents to your children, or either to, even to a fellow brother or sister in Christ. After an interaction, is that person edified and are they left desiring to be more like Christ? Or are they just left with their head kind of spinning? Thinking, what in the world did I just experience? Or even worse, are, are they led deeper into sin? Are they led to pursue a sinful desire? Because that's what false teachers do. Getting ahead of myself there. But that's what false teachers do. It's not just, it's not just neutral. It's chaos. It's sinful desires that they spring and well up in others. Peter gives a description about what awaits these springs without water and mist that are driven by a storm. It says, they are those for whom the black darkness has been reserved. Black darkness is two different Greek words. So it's the, the darkest darkness, that which is utterly dark and gloomy. It's this pitch blackness. It's blackness in the darkness of hell. That's what's reserved for false teachers is eternal punishment, eternal condemnation, eternal fire where the worm does not die and the fire does not go out. That is what awaits those who propagate false gospels. Thinking about that should humble us. You think about your life. You think about your life before Christ and you remember, if you have your theology right, you remember that there is no good thing in you before Christ. There is no merit You deserve nothing but punishment for your sin. And you're humbled because you say, why me, O God? Why have you chosen me? Why have you called me off this path to eternal hell? Why have you pulled me and plucked me from the path to darkness? And with that humility, you should be empowered and emboldened to go preach the gospel to those lost souls. Because if the Lord can save you, if the Lord can pull you off that path of darkness, when there was nothing good in you, there's no less good in any other person than there was in you or in me before Christ saved us. So if he can save you, if he can save me, he can save whomever he chooses. And as you think about these for whom black darkness is reserved, you should be humbled by the Lord's love And you should be driven by that love to go and preach Christ. So how does this point us to Christ? You know, that's all all negative. So so what's the positive side of this? How does it point us to Christ? As believers, you think about this idea of springs without water, mist that, that don't produce rain. Think about Christ as we read in John 4 as the fountain of life, the fountain of living water that never runs dry. Think about what we read in John 4. He, he said, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. The water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The water that Christ gives, the life that he gives is is the only fount. Jesus himself is the only fount that ever satisfies. He is the only fount that ever yields lasting help and lasting results. When we come to Christ, we come to a fountain that will never run dry. It's a fountain that will always produce the nourishment that we need. False teachers give a false hope as a result of false promises, but all who come to Christ, he will receive. 
of all who come to him, none of them will he cast out. To those who come, he will give eternal life. He's the fount that always nourishes, that always provides, the fount that satisfies, the fount that saves. He is the fount that sanctifies. Compare the message of Christ versus the message of the false teachers. The message of the gospel, when it's heated, it produces lasting fruit, lasting eternal transformation. The message of false teacher really produces only this one thing, confusion. So I guess two things, confusion and sin. False teachers leave in their wake confusion and more sin. The message of Christ and the message of the gospel produces salvation, produces sanctification. Christ is the fount that saves, he's the fount that sanctifies, and he's the fount that satisfies. He saves you, he conforms you to his image, And as he is conforming you to his image, you find more and more joy in Christ. More and more satisfaction in the Savior. So may we strive after Christ. May we strive after his example. May we strive to preach and proclaim the words of Christ that have the power to save so we're not empty talkers like these false teachers who are just springs without water, and rainless clouds. It's the words of Christ that give life. He has the words of eternal life. To whom else, to where else shall we go? So they're empty talkers, and in verses 18 and 19, we see that they're also enticing abusers. Enticing abusers. Peter continues, he says, For speaking out arrogant words of vanity... They entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error, promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. So I landed on the term abusers. Uh, We see enticing, right? You see that clearly in the text. But landed on the term abusers because that's what this is. It's vile, wicked abuse. They go after those who are just barely escaped from sin, and they seek to entice them by fleshly, sinful, immoral desires. So let's look at how they do this. How do they entice? Peter begins by kind of telling us how they entice with their words. They speak out arrogant words of vanity. Arrogant words of vanity. Arrogant literally means something of greatly excessive weight. And it's used in the negative connotation here. So MacArthur makes the point that they speak of not weighty matters, but they speak with high-sounding rhetoric, with high-sounding words to build and to puff themselves up. And it really makes sense when you look at the next term. They speak out arrogant words of vanity. Arrogant words that are useless, that produce nothing. They're empty. They speak weighty and swollen words, and in these great and grand and glorious phrases, it really carries no punch. It carries no meaning. So do you see that illustration now? Do you understand what Peter is getting at? Surely you have you have crossed paths with someone who's like this. Maybe it's in the church, or out in the workplace, or in, in just in the general public. Someone who speaks in such a way as to, that their hope is to make you think that they're something or someone that they're not. That they have a knowledge that they don't have. That they have a maturity that they don't have. That they know more than they really know. Really what this is, is hypocrisy. We've all experienced it. They, they put on this front They put on this mask to make you think that there's something that they are not. It's what false teachers do. They speak in these great flowery words, this this high, weighty rhetoric, when really there's nothing behind it. They want to make themselves look greater 
than they really are. So ask a question of you as a believer, and again, as us as a of us as a church, do do we as a church encourage or allow this type of speech? You think about, especially those of the Reformed faith, sometimes we can, we can be so deeply theological that someone can impress us with these weighty words, but when there's not godliness of life that accompanies this great doctrine, it's worthless. It's useless. Do we allow this among us? Do you allow this in your life to become puffed up because, hey, I can, I can explain and teach the doctrines of grace? Well, if your life is just marked by sin, if everything you do is marred by the flesh, it doesn't matter how much you can explain of the doctrines of grace. It doesn't matter how sound your eschatology is. You must be marked by godliness for your doctrine to mean anything. Now, that godliness, just stop and make this point too, that godliness goes only as deep as your theology goes. Shallow theology will produce a shallow godliness. But you can have a deep theology without a deep and growing love for Christ. Could you identify this type of arrogant vanity if it was presented before you? You know, we have to be careful with this because... As someone, you know, I, this is a little ironic because if you speak to me in the hallways, I'm going to probably sound a little less put together in conversation than when I have notes before me. So, so we have to be careful to, to not just go and broadly, blindly apply this idea, but could you spot someone who gives this, this weighty type of conversation when really their life doesn't back it up? And again, we have to be careful. I, I want to stress we need to be gracious and patient and humble and loving. But we need to, it really, our antennas need to be up a little bit when, when, when someone's voice completely changes, when, when their tone and the words they use completely change depending on who they're around and the topics about which they are conversing or talking or teaching. And speak arrogant words of vanity. Peter continues, they speak arrogant words of vanity and they entice by fleshly desires and by sensuality. They gain trust, false teachers gain trust with this high-minded conversation. They make you think that they're trustworthy and mature and knowledgeable. And then what they do is they seek to lead astray. They drive at allowing their hearers to chase after fleshly desires. Do you hear that and understand that? False teachers are marked by letting the people who hear them follow and chase and go deeper and deeper into sin. That ought never be said of you that you willingly let someone chase in their, after their sin. Your teaching, your instruction, your exhortation should always drive to more godliness, to drive to more killing of sin, more of truth, and less of evil, more of Christ, and less of self. That should be the mark of your conversations. Sure mark of a false teacher is the inability to guard against excessive fleshliness. They plan, their, their plan is to trap their prey in that fleshliness. And if they're going to trap you in fleshliness, they're not going to point you and push you away from fleshliness. They're going to try to draw you in. They're going to set traps. They're going to try to lure you in with a bait so that you are then desiring to follow after the flesh. One mark of false teachers is the inability to clearly teach biblical sanctification. Mark of false teachers is the absolute, utter inability to clearly teach biblical sanctification because that's not their goal. 
They don't want you to be sanctified. They're not trying to deliver you from sin to godliness. They're trying to trap you. They're trying to ensnare a prey. So they can't teach clearly on sanctification, not because they don't know what the Bible says, but because that's not their goal. As a church, we must know and understand that. Who's the target of these false teachers? Peter says that they are trying to entice those who barely escape from the ones who live in error. Now, if we just stop and think about this, this is one of those times in Scripture, and I've said this probably multiple times in the past few weeks, because false teachers in general should do this, but this should be the type of truth that really bothers you. It really kind of causes you to, to get your back up because what we see is just utter abuse. False teachers go after what is low-hanging spiritual fruit, those who are new to the faith, those who have been delivered from great types of sin. False teachers go after those because they are easy prey. They're easy to be sucked back into their sin. That's why it's abusive. They seek to capture and captivate those who are weak and helpless. Now, a word on that to drive back to us, because in Christ we should be growing, and so there should be a point where you do not necessarily identify as one who is weak and helpless, right? So, so we should be delivered from that. So maybe you hear that and I'm kind of thinking, okay, well, you know, I'm probably not easy praying. Praise the Lord if you're not. Let's not think wrongly about that and just always consider ourselves to be babes in Christ because if you have walked with Christ for years upon years, you should be growing. You should be becoming a man or a woman of Christ. So you might say, okay, so I'm not a babe. I'm not this spiritually weak, low-hanging fruit. But let's put a little pause on that. And also think about the fact that each and every day, really, you narrowly, I narrowly escape the allurement of sin. You only escape sin because the power of the Holy Spirit helps you escape sin. So yes, you might be growing up in Christ, and again, thank and praise the Lord if you are. But each day, each moment, you are reliant upon the Holy Spirit of God to deliver you from the flesh and from temptation. Paul says, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. This is a reason that we have to be on guard against false teachers because they can allure and entice anyone with sin. It's only by the grace of God and the power of the Spirit that you are not that low-hanging fruit that falls prey to their attacks. Peter, then in verse 19, he gives this condemning statement. He says, They promise freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. This is something we must guard against creeping into healthy churches. It's very plain. You see this a lot in, in those word of faith churches where, where they promise you freedom from sin or disease or poverty or whatever while they themselves are enslaved to all kinds of sin. But we have to guard against that but because that's ultimately what false teachers are going to do. They're going to creep into the church. They live these lives that are close to aligning with the truth. It says they promise freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. So they promise freedom by giving the impression that they too are free from the power of sin. They live lives that align with the truth perhaps on the surface, but deep down they are dark, wicked, sinful, and given over again and again and again to sin. promise freedom, and their only goal is to lead you into unrighteousness. That is false teachers in a nutshell. They are morally bankrupt. They are driven by selfish 
ambition. They're driven by selfish desires. They're dead to God. They lack saving faith. And they follow after the course of the world. Peter says they promise that freedom while they are slaves of corruption. And then he says, for by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. Men are not merely slaves of corrupt actions, but we are enslaved by sin all the way down to the will before Christ. Your, your will, your desires are enslaved to sin before you're made alive in Christ. Calvin then helps to lead us into the positive here by saying that not only may we be free from the dominion of sin, but we must also become conquerors of the flesh and the world. It's not just that you are given power over sin, but in Christ you are made to be a conqueror. 2 Corinthians 2.14, Paul says, But thanks be to God who always leads us to triumph in Christ. Leads us to triumph in Christ. Does your life show that you have just kind of been given some victories over sin, but you're still dabbling in it and you're still a little bit captive to it? Does your life show that you have conquered? Not because of your strength, but because you're alive in Christ. Satan, you are enslaved to and enticed by sin. But in Christ, we are new crea- creatures. We are a new creation. And we overcome, Revelation twelve eleven says, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of your testimony. You overcome because Christ makes you new and then you testify to that power by the way that you live. Live in Christ You're dead to the old nature of sin and Satan. False teachers are empty talkers. They are enticing abusers. And thirdly, in verses 20 through 22, they are entangled sinners. They're entangled sinners, so we go back into the negative. Verses 20 through 22. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world... By the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would be better for them to have not known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed to them. It happened to them according to the true proverb. A dog returns to its own vomit and a sow, a pig, after washing, returns to wallowing in the mire. This is a defining picture of false teachers. They, at one point, showed a little bit of this idea that they had overcome, they had come to a knowledge of Christ, and then they just fall back into it. They're overcome by sin. They're entangled by sin. Now, I want to be clear. Believers, those of us who are in Christ, we, we will never achieve, we're not expected to achieve perfection on this side of heaven. It's the goal. Christ-like perfection is the goal, but we know that we will never reach it. We will always battle sin, but as we look at these verses, 22 through, or 20 through 22, I think we get a helpful picture of, of how we can distinguish those who are fighting sin those who are overcome by sin. Peter says in verse 20 and 21 that they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and then they're entangled and overcome. That sounds a lot like Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews 6 verses 4 through 6 where the author there speaks of those who have tasted the, tasted the heavenly gift and then fallen away. And that is a terrifying, terrifying verse or or set of verses in Scripture, but we need to rightly understand what the Scripture is really saying. Can you be in Christ and then fall away? That's the question. And in Scripture, if you have something that is unclear, the idea would be to look at the whole of the instruction of Scripture or to look at instruction in Scripture that is especially clear. 
So this idea of can you be in Christ and then fall away, or is it what most would explain that, that you have this knowledge, but you're not all the way to Christ? Look at John, the Gospel of John, chapter 6, then we'll go to chapter 10 as well. This, this is the most clarifying statement of Scripture regarding the believer's assurance of salvation. John 6, verse 37 through verse 39. This is Jesus speaking. He said, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that all that he has given me I will lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. All the Father has given to Christ will come to him. He will cast none of them out. And friends, he will lose none of them. Flip forward to chapter 10. John chapter 10. You probably know these verses, at least in some sense. John 10, verse 27 through verse 29. Again, Jesus speaking. He said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. No one means not Satan. It means you cannot even remove yourself from the father's hand. All the Father has given to Christ will come to him, and he will lose none. So back to our context in in 2 Peter, there's only one conclusion about those who fall away, and it is that they were never in Christ. Because those who are in Christ cannot, will not fall away. You know, you can support and proclaim this truth when you walk in increasing victory over sin. The reason this would ever be called into question is because people profess Christ and then fall back into sin. So if you want to support this, if you want to encourage others as they wonder about assurance in Christ, show them what it looks like. Walk in victory over sin. This text, these verses give us plain identification to help us know and and to understand how to mark these people who are not all the way into Christ. The identifier of these who are not actually in Christ is that they're always returning to sin. They have no victory over sin. This is not a picture of a saint who battles sin, who battles temptation, who falls back into a sin and then is broken and repentant. Then maybe they even fall again, and then they repent and are broken again. If you're being honest, and we should always be honest about sin and eternity, it's really typically, typically, not always, but typically it's clear those who are striving against sin and those who are going to fall willingly back into sin. One of the greatest ways that you can really tell and distinguish between one who has not made it to Christ or one who is in Christ and battling the flesh is how do they respond to a confrontation of sin? Do they make excuses? Do they push you away? Do they respond in arrogance? Or is there humility and brokenness? Is there a desire to defeat sin Or their excuses for that sin time and time and time again. Turn that question inward. How do you respond? How do I respond when confronted with sin? Whether from a fellow saint or from the Holy Spirit through the word of God. How do you respond when you're confronted with your sin? Is it humility and brokenness? And repentance? Or is it arrogance? And is it excuses? And is it still running time and again back to that sin? I belabor this point about the importance of distinguishing because of what Peter says next. 
says they're again entangled in their sins and are overcome. And he says, then the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. The last state becomes worse than the first because the Lord increases condemnation and judgment on the one who has tasted Christ and then leaves. So there's two things to draw out from that. One is that continued rejection of the truth only serves to harden and callous a heart. Callous is a heart to sin and righteousness and truth. It's one of the reasons that that scripture says that today is the day of salvation. Because when you hear the gospel, if you're not in Christ, you need to repent and believe. And come to Christ in faith because you're not promised tomorrow. And every time you reject Christ, your heart grows harder every time you reject the truth and the call to change your life your heart becomes harder when someone becomes frequently entangled with sin they're easily more easily overcome by that sin so saint as you battle sin Understand that the more you become entangled with it, the more that you allow yourself to fall prey to that temptation, the easier it will be the next time for you to fall because you're giving your flesh power and momentum. Cut off the arm of the flesh. Cut off sin. And you see those in the world that are so hardened to the truth, so hardened to the gospel, let me encourage you with this one response. It's a a two-pronged response, but it's a singular response. When you are dealing with someone that's so hardened to their sin, proclaim the gospel more boldly. Put on more steam. Bring more power. Talk more about their sin. Talk more about the holiness of God. Talk more about eternal condemnation. Be bold with the truth and live a holy life. When you deal with those who are hard in their sin, be bold with the truth and be holy in your life. So there's two outworkings in this idea of the, the, the second state being worse than the first. And the other outworking of that is to understand that these apostates will incur a greater, stricter condemnation and judgment from the Lord. Matthew eleven twenty three 23 and 24, Jesus says, And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted in heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades, for if the miracles had, been occur, had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained until this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Sodom was a city of wickedness. And Jesus says, for this town that saw his miracles, the eternal condemnation of, of Sodom will be more tolerable than for the town of Capernaum. Now, obviously, eternity in hell is eternity in hell. But there's this idea that Jesus will give a stricter judgment, a greater condemnation to those who remain hard-hearted in sin. Luke 12, verses 47 and 48. Jesus said that the slave that knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accord with his will, he will receive many lashes. But the one who did not know the master's will and committed deeds worthy of flogging, will receive but few. From everyone who has been given much, much will be required. Now you see there that the one who did not obey the will because of ignorance, they still will be flogged, right? There is still punishment. Even for those who die in a remote jungle, never having heard the gospel of Christ, they still have the same eternal end, punishment. In hell, and that that should break your heart. A a sidetrack here that those who never hear of Christ are still accountable to come to Christ. They're still accountable to God for their sin. But Jesus, in that parable, he says that the one who knew the will of the Master and still did not act according to to that will, to that knowledge, 
he will receive many lashes. He will receive a great punishment. We could continue on there, but for the sake of time, press forward to verse 22, and verse 22 will kind of help draw us full circle back to a, a final pointer to Christ. Peter there says, It's happened to them, to these false teachers, according to the true proverb. A dog returns to its own vomit, and a sow, after washing, returns to wallowing in the mire. A pig will go back to roll in the mud even after it's been cleaned. That's like a sinner who sees the beauty of Christ and refuses to repent. They just run back deeper into that sin. Like a dog returning to eat its own vomit, it leaves that which is good and pure and beautiful and perfect and good. They leave that and they return to their vomit. They return to the mud. This is such a vivid, such a clear illustration you've been delivered from sin by the cleansing blood, by the redeeming work of Christ, how do you return to wallow in the sin that pierced your Savior? Christ was crushed for your iniquities. He was crushed to pay the price for your sin. How do you return to that sin that crushed your Savior? part of how being in Christ brings transformation because in Christ you have a new nature and that new nature rightly esteems rightly values the price of the blood of Christ the price of your forgiveness of sin and that change should be increasingly evident you sin less and less as you are made more and more like Christ and your desire for sin is less and less as you are made more and more like Christ. He changes all of you. He changes that which you find pleasure in. You go from finding pleasure in sin and fleshly things to loving what is good and honorable and right and glorifying to God. That's how Christ transforms you. He transforms all of you. We must hear this call of Scripture. We must resist the defiling, enticing, enslavement of the flesh. We do this by coming to and drinking of the fountain of Christ. You will not resist false teachers if you are not drinking in Christ. If you're not satisfied in Him. If you're not saved by Him. If you're not being sanctified by him, you will never resist the corruption of the flesh. If you don't love his beauty, if you don't see his beauty, if you don't see his value, how will you ever hate your sin? Come to him. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Good. Drink from his fountain of living water and know that it will never run dry. It is the fount from which you will drink today, tomorrow, a hundred years from now, and for all eternity. You will drink from the fount of Christ because it's Christ who makes you acceptable before the Father. Give your life to Christ. Resist the devil. Resist false teachers. Stand upon and proclaim the truth. Do that by the power of the Holy Spirit to the glory of God alone. Make much of Christ. Glorify God and he will find pleasure in you. One day you will be made completely new with Christ. You will share in his glory in heaven. If you don't share in making much of him in this life, what hope do you have in the life to come? Come to Christ. Drink of him. Glorify him in all that you say and do. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you again for your word and its great and instructive truth. Lord, it is our prayer that we would hear and receive and apply the truth. Lord, that you would give us give us those hearts that are ready to receive the truth. That you would give us those hearts that are humbly broken as we consider your word and the many ways that we fall short of your commands. Lord, I pray that you would write your word upon our hearts and pray that you would conform us to the image of Christ. Pray that you would empower us by your Holy Spirit that our lives would be lived to the praise and honor and glory of your name. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 